Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 18A, an interview on the making of Ulysses S. Grant with Nick Sacco. I'm excited to welcome Nick Sacco to the show today. Nick is a park ranger at Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site in St. Louis and an author for the Journal of the Civil War Era. He's also a specialist on Grant's personal life, especially before the Civil War. For example, how did Grant's experiences in the Mexican-American War and as a failed businessman, although I hear Nick might challenge the traditional narrative on that one, how did these things shape him as a UN, Union general and U.S. president? And that's what we'll dig into today. Nick, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Kenny. I'm excited about being on. Thanks. So, Nick, you are like the man when it comes to Grant's life before the Civil War. What made this a topic, an area of such interest to you? Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I guess the journey starts about maybe 10, 11 years ago. Um, I really stress to people that, you know, I didn't grow up with the Civil War. I didn't grow up going to Civil War battlefields or anything like that. I've always had a, a, an interest in history, but my interests were in different topics and subjects and time periods. And so uh, what really changed things for me was that uh, I was finishing my undergraduate degree. Uh, I was getting my, my history degree, was planning to become a high school history teacher, and I got an internship with the Park Service uh, at Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site here in St. Louis. And so um, started working at the park and learning about Ulysses S. Grant's life story. And uh, I just really became extremely fascinated with the Civil War era. Uh, obviously, Grant himself, but then just the, the 19th century more broadly. I, I really kind of found my, uh, my historical passion in terms of just, you know, a time period that really spoke to me. And I found it extremely relevant uh, to a lot of the discussions we have today about the world today in the 21st century. And so um, did that internship. I, I read every book I could get my fingers on, uh, went back to school, and I ended up uh, getting a, a master's degree from Indiana University. And just kind of by a pure stroke of luck, as I finished my master's degree, uh, there was an open vacancy back at the Grant Historical Site, and I was offered the position. So uh, I've been in a full-time capacity with the Park Service for about uh, about seven years now, uh, not only doing tours, but also now doing lots of other things like education programs, historical research, uh, public presentations, podcast interviews, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, wide-ranging things. And, and I think my interest uh, really with grants specifically before the Civil War is I, I just kind of felt like um, while there's been a lot said about Grant, there's not a lot that's been said about um, who he was as a person. I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of attention in the Civil War and the presidential years, but I, I just genuinely felt like um, not a lot of attention is given to kind of the, the forces that shaped him before the war. And in some cases, I, I felt like what was being written was wrong, uh, which is really what inspired me uh, to write a journal article about Ulysses S. Grant's relationship with slavery before the Civil War that was published uh, with the Journal of Civil War Era in 2019. Uh, it was sort of my effort to uh, try to correct and clarify uh, some of the, uh, the known or, or at least believed ideals about Grant's relationship with slavery. So probably beyond the scope of our discussion today, but that is a particular aspect of Grant's life that I find super fascinating is his evolving attitudes towards slavery. I, I, I'm actually tempted to, to say, what was the correction? Like, I, I want to hear more about that. That's sure. Really 
Sure. Um, so I kind of feel like uh, the majority of uh, historians and biographers in recent years. So, um, you know, talking about people like Joan Waugh, Ron White, Ron Chernow, um, the, you know, they're writing fine books on Grant and they're, they're all fine scholars. Uh, but I just kind of felt like some of the context wasn't quite there. Uh, there wasn't really uh, a strong efforts in terms of trying to interrogate uh, Grant's uh, his life in Missouri and sort of the Missouri context of Missouri politics in the 1850s. And basically, my central contention is, is that Grant, uh, while we don't know for certain what his attitudes were towards slavery, I think that he was perhaps, uh, if not full out pro-slavery, uh, he certainly benefited from slavery. He uh, owned an enslaved man named William Jones. He lived on a plantation at Whitehaven here in St. Louis in the 1850s. Uh, he actually, at one point, appraised the value of three enslaved laborers on a neighbor's property during his time here in the 1850s. So my argument is that Grant's relationship with slavery was much more intimate than, uh, than what historians have previously argued, and that um, Grant didn't have a strong anti-slavery perspective throughout his entire life. It's really that when the Civil War comes around and Grant really starts to understand the political ramifications of the war, the political ramifications of emancipation, that's when he really embraces the end of slavery during the Civil War. But before the Civil War, I would argue that he's really a Northern Democrat in the mold of a James Buchanan or Stephen Douglas before the Civil War. He even says in his memoirs that uh, Grant admits he didn't agree with Abraham Lincoln in 1860. He thought that uh, Douglas had the best platform for maintaining the Union. So uh, I try to bring that Missouri and Grant's relationship with the Democrat Party, I try to bring that context to the forefront to suggest that maybe that relationship with slavery, there's more to it than simply owning William Jones for a period of time on St. Louis. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I mean, our whole art uh, interview here is the making of Grant, and that's a, right. a part of the making of Grant that, that isn't widely out there. So awesome that you're unearthing that and sharing that. Thanks. Yeah. So, okay. So let's dive into some of those experiences I talked about at the top that, that are widely talked about, you know, and that's uh, like, it's very tempting to me to look at the experiences of Grant and say the Mexican-American War, that's the experience that made General Grant who he was. And his, his failures or struggles as a businessman that made President Grant who he is. What's your take on that? Can you draw a line from Mexican-American War Grant to Civil War Grant and from down on his luck businessman Grant to empathetic and trusting President Grant? Sure, I think so. You know, I think uh, every single person uh, who we are in a present moment is a, a collection of our past experiences, good and bad. And so... Uh, with Grant specifically, you know, there's sort of this great contradiction in his life before the Civil War because he uh, never really desired this career in the U.S. military, very reluctant to go to West Point, uh, talks about it initially, talks about having a very short military career and then uh, leaving the Army uh, to find other ventures in life. Uh, and yet he has this success in the U.S. Army even before the Civil War. He wins two awards for bravery in the Mexican-American War. Uh, he earns a brevet rank during the Mexican-American War. Uh, and then on the whole flip side of things, Grant in the 1850s, after a decade in the Army, he decides to move to St. Louis in 1854. And he decides he's going to try his hand at farming. And uh, he's in the complete opposite of the army. He's very excited about this. He's very excited about 
getting involved in farming and getting involved in business and becoming sort of this, you know, self-sufficient yeoman farmer here in St. Louis. And so, um, but then, you know, at the same time, he doesn't have as much success with that. So I think when it comes to the Mexican-American War, the one thing I would really point to is that Grant is a quartermaster. And so as quartermaster, he's in charge of logistics. He's managing supplies. He's making sure the soldiers uh, in Mexico have food, clothing, a place to say weapons. So I think we can see these experiences uh, as a quartermaster, even some of the experiences on the battlefield. Uh, is really giving Grant a good holistic view of how to really be an effective general. I think uh, Grant is able to sort of look at the big picture during the Civil War and really understand the logistical side of things in, in that it's, you know, it's not simply giving the men weapons. They need food. They need clothing. They need a lot of uh, resources to ensure that, uh, you know, they're prepared to achieve victory on the battlefield. So I think Grant's experience as a quartermaster are crucial to who he becomes during the Civil War as a general. Uh, at the same time, with on the business side of things, you know, Grant is a, one of very few presidents who can genuinely say they experienced real hardship, real poverty, you know, in a point in their life where, you know, finding food may have been a struggle. And so I think Grant, when he's president of the United States, he can understand uh, the challenges that people are going through and the, and the hardships of life in the 19th century, a time when there's really not much in terms of social safety nets for people who are going through tough times. Uh, during Grant's second term, the Panic of 1873, this is a terrible economic downturn. It's one of the uh, you know, worst economic depressions uh, leading up to the Great Depression of the 1930s. And so uh, Grant, you know, he could he can empathize and understand the struggles that people are, are going through uh, during that terrible panic that hits during his second term in office. So um, I, I definitely think there's some connections to be made with those pre-war experiences and shaping how Grant turns out as a general and president. I, I'd love to dive a little deeper into each of those. Uh, in the Mexican-American War, like, do you have any anecdotes or stories of things that, that you see really shaped him? For example, I mean, he worked with guys like Zachary Taylor, another future president, and someone who, at least it seemed to me, he kind of modeled himself after as a general. Uh, a any more things you can share in there? Yeah, I think uh, Zachary Taylor is a great starting point for looking at Grant during the Mexican-American War because uh, Grant speaks very highly of Zachary Taylor, uh, in his personal memoirs, but uh, you know, kind of looking at it more deeply, I think there's a lot of connections and parallels to be made. I think Grant is really influenced by uh, Taylor's approach to military challenges, his overall demeanor. I'd even even Zachary Taylor's appearance is something that Grant picks up on. You know, Grant's not one for pomp and circumstance. He's known during the Civil War to wear a private's blouse out on the battlefield. Um, you know, he's not very concerned about, you know, the formalities of military decor. Uh, it was very similar to Zachary Taylor. I think also, uh, you know, Zachary Taylor, when there's challenges or setbacks, when, when plans are not going the way they should, Taylor has a very cool, calm demeanor. He doesn't let things get to him. And, and you know, anybody who knows Grant would tell you it's the same thing with Grant, you know, not letting um, difficult challenges get in the way. You know, I love that during the Battle of the Wilderness, 
Grant staff officers, they keep going to Grant, you know, what's Lee going to do? What is he going to do? And Grant says, let's stop worrying about Lee and start focusing on what we're going to do. You know, that's just classic Grant. And you can totally see Zachary Taylor, you know, possibly saying the same thing. And interestingly enough, I would even say that uh, Grant's approach to the Appomattox surrender, you know, there might be a connection to be made with Zachary Taylor. If you look at the uh, the Battle of Monterey, uh, Zachary Taylor, you know, he he conquers uh, Monterey, takes over the city, and uh, with Gen- General Impudia in the uh, in the Mexican army, he negotiates a surrender in which uh, Impudia in the Mexican troops they surrender the city in exchange for an eight week armistice. Uh, but then Taylor allows the Mexican troops to be paroled and go home with their weapons. Uh, and so it's sort of interesting that we see sort of the same idea with Grant in the sense that at least for the officers, they get to go home with their arms. And then for the regular uh, soldiers, uh, they're going home with their horses. And Grant basically says, go home to your farms and you know be loyal citizens. And so obviously there's some differences between Monterey and Appomattox. But I think Grant, the spirit of Zachary Taylor's approach to uh, terms that kind of allowed the Mexican troops to save face. I think we see sort of that same spirit at play with Appomattox as well. That, that is awesome context. And there's one thing in there that you, you mentioned that suddenly sparked another silly little question in my mind. You mentioned I was always like really casual as a general. Do, do you know, as a president, was he a guy who like showed up in a t-shirt at work or was he someone <laughs> who actually dressed to the nines for that job? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. You know, you look at all the pictures of Grant during the presidency and it's just the very standard, you know, the black and white suit right. with the bow tie. So, you know, I think Grant, uh, you know, he was he was pretty, you know, I wouldn't say that he was the flashiest dresser, but, you know, he, he came prepared for his meetings and, and dressed well during the presidency, perhaps a little bit more attuned to decor as a civilian as opposed <laughs> to a general. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, okay. So let's talk more into those business ventures that the area where it sounded like you really kind of want to challenge the narrative there. Uh, sure. And just, yeah. And I just want to lay out, like my understanding is uh, he is deployed in California and he tries a lot of business ventures while he's in California that, that all struggle and fail. And then he eventually goes back to the East. And as you mentioned, I mean, he's eventually at a point where he's like selling his gold pocket watch to, you know, get Christmas presents for his family. So that, that sounds like a struggling businessman. <laughs> how, how, what's your take on that? Yeah, it is certainly a struggle for Grant, you know, to go back to the Pacific Coast. Grant is uh, with the Army still in 1852. He's sent to Fort Vancouver uh, and then to Fort Humboldt in uh, Northern California and Eureka, California. So Grant is in the Pacific Coast for two years, but he's separated from his family and uh, he decides in 54 to come back to St. Louis. And so uh, first and foremost, you know, as I've sort of alluded to, Grant, uh, he wants to be back to his family. He's been away for two years. Um, there's a two-year-old son, Ulysses S. Grant Jr., that uh, Grant has never seen before. Uh, so he's got children that uh, he, he wants to see, he wants to get back to his wife, Julia. And you know, moving to Whitehaven, it's, it's about bigger things than money because Grant certainly uh, you know, he had a regular paycheck with the army and he could have continued in that career with the army, but he's, he takes this huge risk. He gives up this regular paycheck. He gives up this officer's rank in the army because moving to Whitehaven is about being closer to the family. It's about having a place where he can establish roots and call home. And it's about even having a new beginning in his own life as well. So Grant is looking to become a successful 
farmer. Uh, he wants to be able to sell crops at a profit, raising mostly fruit and vegetable crops here in St. Louis. And so obviously on the economic side of things, th this plan does not work out according to what Grant has envisioned. Um, we see a number of things, you know, here in the Midwest, we get all sorts of crazy weather and uh, um, it's unusually cold in the late 1850s. The world is going through uh, the very end of the Little Ice Age. And so here in St. Louis, there's several times where there's just unseasonably cold uh, weather that prevents Grant from growing crops uh, here at Whitehaven. Uh, the Panic of 1857 uh, really lowers the value of Grant's crops, makes it difficult for him to turn a profit. And Grant himself suffered from malaria through most of his life. Uh, he mentions in his memoirs that as a boy in Ohio, uh, he acquired malaria and he fought it throughout his life. Fevers, chills. You go through Grant's letters and there's letters where he talks about the fact that he's going through a lot of pains. There's a letter during the Civil War uh, when Ulysses writes to Julian says, I, I had one of my chill days recently. So, you know, I think um, Grant's experiences as a farmer uh, just really highlight just how little control farmers have. There's so many factors external to the individual farmer, uh, weather and the economy. I mean, it's not just farming, but there's so many industries where you can do all the right things and you can still end up not, you know, having as much success as you hope. And so Grant resorts to selling firewood at times. And uh, he does attempt to try to get some jobs in downtown St. Louis for a little while. He's involved in the real estate industry. He applies and fails to uh, get the job to become the county engineer in St. Louis County as well. So ultimately, you know, financially, the St. Louis experiences don't work for Grant. But in a bigger picture, uh, it's not fully a, fa a failure because Ulysses and Julia both say these are some of the happiest years of their lives because they're with their kids and they're with their family. Julia Grant in her personal memoirs talks about how uh, how much joy and happiness the family had during these years in the 1850s. And so despite the hardship and poverty, um, these are relatively positive years and these are happy memories for the Grant family and uh, the Grants maintain uh, an active connection to St. Louis uh, for the remainder of their lives. Uh, the Whitehaven property that Grant farmed at, this was his father-in-law, Frederick Dent's home. Uh, but after the war, Grant purchases Whitehaven. It's an occasional vacation spot. It, uh, it's a horse breeding operation for Grant during his presidency. And, uh, and there's that lifelong connection to St. Louis, even though uh, there's these struggles uh, in, in business. So uh, not diminishing the, the business struggles, but you know, there's 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 some happy memories, and, and Grant himself as a as a family man is a huge success at this time. Awesome, I appreciate that context there. What's your favorite story of pre Civil War Grant that you think really reveals something about his character? You know, I, I have to bring it back to um, the children. So Ulysses and Julia Grant, they had four children, and I love the fact that. All four of the children at, at various points and in different interviews, they all basically come out and try to argue that they were the favorite child of their parents. And I just get a kick out of that because I, I think as a parent, if you're, you know, if, ever, if each of your kids thinks that they're the favorite, you're doing something right. And, uh, you know, it kind of speaks to the special relationship that Grant has with his children. Um, you know, going back to the St. Louis years, you know, Grant's going to going to sit with his children and read books. He's going to play 
board games with them. There's a specific room at the Whitehaven estate called the sitting room where Grant would, uh, he'd get on the floor and wrestle with his kids on the floor. He'd stay up late with his wife and, and uh, read the newspapers and talk politics with her. So, you know, Grant is a father that leads by example. He's somebody that carries himself with integrity and really um, is, a, is a, a wonderful example of somebody who's doing everything he can to provide a good life for his children. And uh, I'm not a parent myself, but there will, will be a day someday, probably sooner than later when I go down that path. And I just think that, you know, Grant as a father is something that, that, that you know, all fathers could emulate. And so um, that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear your question. We need the uh, Ulysses S. Grant parenting guide. That's, yeah, that's exactly. what it sounds like we need. <laughs> exactly. So my next question is a little bit of a tack in a slightly different direction. And that's of all the Gilded Age presidents, it feels like Grant is the one who fights hardest, practically the only one who fights at all for the rights of the freedmen in the South. But first, do you have any sense if that's accurate? You know, it, like it seems like he's practically the most progressive president on racial equality between Lincoln and LBJ. Does that sound about right? So I think uh, when we're when we're looking at the various presidents, uh, you know, from the Reconstruction era to uh, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, I, I think there's a there's a there's an argument to be made that that the civil rights gains that are made during Grant's presidency are, are some of the most significant during this roughly one 100 year period. Um, you know, Grant is coming into the presidency at a very unique time uh, in Grant's mind it all fundamentally comes back to maintaining the results of the civil war. It's about maintaining the stability of the union. And it's about uh, ensuring that uh, emancipation, uh, it moves beyond simply a military goal to uh, a fundamental change to America's political system and ensuring that the various amendments, the 13th amendment abolishing slavery, the 14th amendment establishing uh, birthright citizenship, and then during Grant's presidency, he's going to support the 15th Amendment, uh, which uh, ends racial discrimination at the polls. Uh, and, you know, obviously, each of these amendments has their little holes that you could poke into. And the gains of Reconstruction will be challenged and, and overtaken in many ways during the Jim Crow era. But for Grant, uh, you know, ensuring that all vestiges of slavery are removed and permanently removed during uh, reconstruction and in the wake of the Civil War. That's what it all fundamentally comes down to. And so I think when Grant takes office in 1869 after winning election in 68, um, you know, the political conditions are there. Uh, the creativity is there to come up with new ways of uh, ensuring that African Americans are protected in their civil rights and in, in their voting rights as well. Um, I would argue, though, that at the same time, I don't think Grant's the only president that's fighting for civil rights. I think uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, I, I think genuinely he was concerned about African-American rights. I think he was concerned about um, protecting the freed people. But the political conditions, uh, they're not the same as when Grant's in office. Uh, Hayes is really hamstrung by a, co a Congress that's dominated by the opposition party. Uh, Hayes is a Republican. Uh, he's got a Democrat majority that's not going to do anything in terms of passing legislation uh, to promote civil rights in the South. Uh, Hayes wins a controversial election in 1876 where 
Uh, many people are saying that he won that election illegitimately. So he is viewed as an illegitimate president. And uh, the political culture at the time, people are ready to move on from Reconstruction. They're trying to fight uh, the effects of the Panic of 1873. Um, they're losing interest in these, uh, you know, in quote unquote, Southern affairs. Northerners are ready to go back to the business of promoting the economy and attending to their own interest. And uh, even if that means, um, you know, the rise of, uh, of Jim Crow-like laws uh, and the, uh, you know, the removal of African-Americans from political life. And so Hayes, I think, genuinely uh, cares. And James A. Garfield, uh, my colleague, Todd Arrington, who's the site manager at James A. Garfield National Historic Site, uh, Todd Arrington just wrote a book called The Last Lincoln Republican, which is the term he gives to James Garfield. And uh, Garfield kind of voices a renewed commitment to using the federal government to promote civil rights and to protect African-Americans in the South. Uh, but of course, he's tragically assassinated a few months uh, into his presidency. And uh, but, you know, he speaks in his first inaugural address in language that's very similar to the way Grant talked when he was president. So. Um, you know, there's there's definitely uh, others that care, but I think just the conditions, the political, uh, the wind, so to speak, during Grant's presidency really enable um, some innovative thinking to promote civil rights. And, uh, and you know, the Reconstruction is very complex because, you know, not only do we have African-Americans and their rights, but we're also looking at um, you know, Native Americans and, you know, westward expansion and you know, some pretty horrific battles between the U.S. military and the various tribes. Battle Little Bighorn is the most obvious example of a battle during Grant's presidency. We have the, uh, you know, large numbers of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, Chinese immigrants coming that are viewed upon suspiciously. Uh, and Grant himself kind of has a little, uh, uh, you know, a little tiff with the Catholic Church during his presidency. He kind of, uh, he promotes public education but he also speaks out against, uh, you know, the perceived threat of uh, bringing Catholic doctrine into the public schools. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a, it's a multifaceted, you know, complex view of civil rights during Grant's presidency. Uh, that's fascinating. And it, one thing that's really interesting about it is it sounds like, you know, circumstance made him one of the more progressive and effective kind of reconstruction, you know, presidents. Kind of the same way that circumstance made him a failed businessman. <laughs> it's just kind of which way right. the wind any given day. Right. Um, I'd love to dive a little deeper into why he was someone who, who did seem to care so much, fight so hard for these folks. You mentioned, uh, I, I think kind of paraphrasing you that he wanted to make sure the results of the civil war stuck. Is, is there anything more to it? You know, um, for example, was there a, a political calculus of uh, the, the black Southerners are the Republican voters down there? We need to empower them or we lose. Or was there anything from his personal life, either uh, his down on the luck times, making him empathize with these folks? And, and also, you, you know, we started off with you talking about how he had at least benefited from slavery. So how does he reconcile, you know, his experiences then to, to now? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, because um, I would the, the term I would give for Grant's views on, on these matters is, is evolution. There's there's evolution in Grant's thinking because. Uh, you know, before the Civil War, Grant has this relationship with slavery. But at the same time, um, you know, I would argue that Grant does sort of he recognizes the basic humanity of enslaved African-Americans. Um, not that that justifies his ownership of William Jones by any means, but um, he does. You know, he, he views African-Americans with with respect 
And I would say that during the Civil War, you know, Grant is is making some interesting decisions with regards to addressing, you know, the spirit of emancipation that's emerging within um, the U.S. government, the Lincoln administration. So what I mean by that is that uh, during the Vicksburg campaign, Grant establishes refugee camps in Mississippi. So as enslaved runaways are seeking aid from the U.S. Army. Grant really, uh, he establishes these camps where um, African-American women are serving as laborers, as cooks and laundresses in the army. African-American children are going to school and learning how to read and write. Uh, African-American men are providing aid to the U.S. military and eventually are going to be mustered in as United States colored troops in the the, uh, U.S. Army. Uh, So these refugee camps are in some ways, uh, you know, a social service that the army is providing during the Vicksburg campaign. Uh, and Grant ends prisoner of war exchanges with the Confederacy because the Confederacy refuses to view black soldiers uh, as soldiers with, uh, deserving of the same protections as white soldiers. Uh, Confederacy basically starts uh, you know, capturing black troops and either selling them back into slavery or outright murdering them like in the Battle of Fort Pillow. And Grant says, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to stop prisoner of war exchanges. If you're not going to acknowledge um, the uh, uh, black soldiers. And so Brooks Simpson, probably my favorite Grant historian, you know, he famously argues that for Grant, by this point, it became about the color of the uniform and not the color of the skin. So, you know, some really, really remarkable uh, changes in Grant's thinking during the Civil War. And so after the Civil War, Uh, As the 13th Amendment is ratified and we see the end of slavery and we see this framework for establishing citizenship, uh, civil rights and voting rights for African-Americans, Grant becomes to, you know, gets to this point where, you know, all citizens should have equal protection of the law. So if you're an American citizen, you're entitled to the same rights as anybody else, regardless of your background, regardless of who you are. So Grant really embraces this spirit of equality under the law. And that's another big thing, too, is that Grant is very much about following the law. Everything is always about in accordance to the law with Grant. Uh, He even says during his first inaugural address that, you know, if there's a bad law in the book, he says, I know other no, no, no other way of enforcing uh, of following that law other than just following it to the T. So if there's a bad law, you follow that law to the T. You demonstrate that it doesn't work, and then you go and you make changes to the law. So that's a big aspect of Grant too, is is just how much he's trying to enforce the, uh, you know, the importance of following the law to the T. But at the same time, you know, Grant is a Republican. He is a partisan at this time. And the Republican Party, as you've alluded to, they do stand to benefit from uh, African-American men voting. Um, African-American men, they're the most loyal element in the South. And the Republican Party feels that African-Americans should be rewarded for that loyalty uh, by earning the right to vote. And the Republicans are also very concerned about ensuring that, you know, this is not a sectional party. That was the knock when the Republicans formed in the 1850s is that, you know, this is a northern party. Uh, You know, they they don't have the interest of the entire nation at hand. So the Republicans in the 1860s and 70s are saying, no, we are a national party. We have support in the South as well as the North. And so the Republicans are trying to make the South a competitive uh, landscape for politics where multiple parties can participate in elections uh, because ultimately that's the goal of popular government is to give people 
uh, legitimate choices to, uh, you know, when they're going to the polls and voting in elections. And so, um, you know, the Republican Party is obviously looking at the Electoral College. They're looking at representation in Congress and they stand to benefit from black uh, black participation in electoral politics. Uh, Grant himself in 1868, uh, he wins the popular vote against Horatio Seymour, but he only won it by about 300,000 votes. And 1868 is the first election where we see a large number of African-American men voting and upwards of 500,000 African-American men voted for Grant. So the difference wow. in the popular vote in 1868 uh, comes from Black voters in that year's election. Now, Grant obviously won the uh, Electoral College by a landslide, but that popular vote was much closer than you might think. And Black voters played a crucial role in handing Grant that victory in 1868. Yeah, and, and a bit of foreshadowing. You mentioned the uh, controversial Rutherford B. Hayes election. That will certainly be an election where those 500,000 African-Americans have a tougher time voting. So That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, you know, actually, it's something that I, I was hoping to get to eventually. But, you know, I think the 1872 election uh, is one of the fairest elections we'll see in the 19th century in terms of, uh, you know, Grant is mobilizing uh, the U.S. government. Uh, they're, they're working through the attorney general's office. The Department of Justice is established during Grant's presidency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in response to Ku Klux, uh, Ku Klux Klan violence in the South. And the efforts of the, of the uh, Department of Justice uh, in ensuring that anybody who wanted to vote in 1872, that that's a fair and free election, um, that really is a, a testament to Grant's presidency and a testament to his uh, vision of ensuring free and fair elections. But in 1876, you know, by that time, we're starting to see uh, kind of a, a growing disenchantment with Reconstruction, and we're, st we're starting to see new innovative tactics you know the mississippi plan uh where in mississippi we see democrats that start um you know republicans are going and having political conventions and uh, uh you know white democrats stand outside with rifles and they try to intimidate uh, people attending those conventions um you know we're starting to see other tactics of uh, uh fraud and intimidation of african-american voters and so uh, kind of the spirit of 1872 does not translate in 1876. And it ends up, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of debate about who truly won because there was so much uh, fraud and violence in the South. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, OK, one, one guy you mentioned in passing, you mentioned him a couple times a day. And I actually want to dive a little deeper on him is, is William Jones. Yeah. And that's because my my basic understanding of him and the story I told him in the past episode is at some point, Grant comes into possession of a slave and he sets him free when he like could have sold him for money and when he was poor. And it seems like this real altruistic story. Is, is that is there more to it? What like what is the, the most recent understanding of Grant's relationship with William Jones, how he came to own him? Sure. So uh, yeah, there, so first of all, um, there's a lot that's really murky and ambiguous <laughs> in the historical record because yeah. yeah. uh, Grant himself. Uh, never mentions William Jones, never talks about him in his letters or personal memoirs. So the, the one sole document we have is a manumission paper that Grant signs in 1859, freeing William Jones. And so in that manumission, Grant says that he acquires Jones from his father-in-law, Julia Dent Grant's father, Frederick Dent. Um, whether or not it was, whether or not Grant paid cash for it, or if it was a gift from his father-in-law, we don't Weirdest know. Gift. 
Yeah, we don't even know how long Grant owned William Jones for. Um, sometimes you'll read online that Grant owned William Jones for a year. That is not confirmed in the manumission paper. We don't know how long he owned William Jones. So um, there's a lot of um, uncertainty as to exactly how that relationship would have worked out. But um, Grant, he is working about 80 acres of the land on the Whitehaven property here in St. Louis, which would obviously lead us to believe that Jones is probably working side by side with Grant in the fields, trying to raise crops and, and whatnot. And um, Grant in 1859, he is, he's given up farming and he's moved to downtown St. Louis, uh, which is probably one reason why he decides to free William Jones is that he's not involved with farming anymore. At this point, he's trying to succeed in real estate. Uh, so, you know, Grant is fighting poverty. Uh, and he could have most certainly decided to sell William Jones for upwards of a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. And so, uh, and what I always point out too is that you know, in freeing William Jones, Grant did something that other slaveholding presidents never did in their lifetime. You know, there's other presidents that never freed any of their enslaved people, uh, you know, during their lifetime. So that's yeah. an important, yes, yeah, so that's important to keep that in mind. Uh, but at the same time. Uh, Julia Dentgrant, his wife, although she never legally owned them, um, her father had gifted Julia four enslaved laborers as well, uh, Dan, Eliza, John, and Julia. And so even after Grant frees William Jones, those four enslaved laborers are still living with the Grant family in downtown St. Louis. So there still is uh, a relationship with slavery. And when the Grant family decided to move to Galena, Illinois in 1860 and leave St. Louis, uh, Ulysses and Julia hire out those enslaved laborers to other people. So basically, uh, other people paid uh, the, Grant's, the Grant's money and they continued like, to labor for other people. Slaves, that's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, essentially, right. And so, you know, that's another one of these, you know, important points of, of complexity and nuance that is sometimes forget, forgotten because yes, Grant does the right thing in freeing William Jones, but there's still this connection with the other foreign slave people that are living with the Grant family in St. Louis. And so, um, so Jones himself, just to very briefly wrap up my answer here, I have yeah. tried to do some research on him and where he may have gone. And uh, one source that I tried to use are city directories in every major city back then in the day, Days before the telephone, these city directories would list everybody's name, address, and their occupation. And interestingly enough, in 1860, uh, for the St. Louis City Directory, there is an entry for a William Jones colored in the 1860 City Directory. Uh, unfortunately, um, the 1860 census, there's no listing for a William Jones who's African American in the census. So I couldn't fully confirm it. But in 1860, there is a free person of color named William Jones living in St. Louis and working as a horse driver, which, of course, you know, Jones would have certainly known how to ride a horse if he's working with Grant. So um, there's some speculation that this that Jones may have decided to stay in St. Louis and just uh, there's a very small community of uh, free African-Americans in downtown St. Louis at this time. Uh, and so there's a possibility that he may have uh, become a part of that community and stayed in St. Louis. But beyond that, um, you know, it's purely speculative at this point. I, I wish you luck on that research. Uh, Thank you. Sure. you know, let me know when you got some, something new. Definitely. Okay, I've got a couple questions left for you. And I've so sure. appreciated your time and, and your insight and all these. 
Uh, first, next one is is Grant is a guy who has his reputation has really experienced a bit of a positive renaissance the past thirty years or so, I, I guess. Why do you think he was initially less appreciated, and why is is his stature rising as historians take a second look at him? It's great, great question. So I think um, on the one hand, I think the most obvious answer is just sort of the power of the lost cause. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of the uh, General Lee kind of. I, I would argue he, in some ways, birds the notion of the lost cause in his farewell message to the troops when he says that, you know, they only lost because of overwhelming men, uh, numbers of, of men on the battlefield, overwhelming resources from the north. And so, you know, he's essentially saying, you know, Grant, Grant only won because he had more resources and men. It wasn't because of his generalship. And so, you know, I think that's the most obvious answer is that, you know, it's easy to look at some of these rather crude stereotypes of Grant as a butcher or as a, as a bad general or what have you, and to kind of point that to the lost cause. But um, I would also argue that academic scholarship, particularly academic scholarship from Northerners and, uh, you know, people that may, you would think, have, uh, you know, support for Grant that come out very critically against Grant as well, especially when it comes to Grant's presidency. And, and just to give you a couple examples, um, Henry Adams, you know, his Pulitzer yeah. Prize winning book, The Education of Henry Adams, uh, we have to remember that Adams was a disgruntled office seeker. He tried to find a political office when Grant was president uh, and he couldn't, he couldn't get that political office. And so he was very disgruntled. And he famously says in the education of Henry Adams that uh, the evolution from Washington to Grant would have been disappointing to Charles Darwin. Uh, so some really oh, hard. Yes. So he's saying some really harsh stuff about Grant and it wins a Pulitzer prize. And, uh, Alan Nevins, who's a very famous, you know, author, uh, journalist and historian of the Civil War uh, in the early 1900s. And in the 1930s, he writes a book about Grant's secretary of state, Hamilton Fish. And in Nevins' interpretation, everything good from Grant's presidency came from Hamilton Fish and everything bad was because of Grant. And Nevins argues that the biggest mistake of Grant's presidency was ratification of the 15th Amendment. And Evans argues that it was because, uh, in his views, African-Americans were not prepared for the right to vote. And because the Republicans and Grant pushed for the 15th Amendment, uh, it unnecessarily created tensions with the former Confederacy and led to the rise of Jim Crow. Uh, right. And Nevin's book on Hamilton Fish wins a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> so we're seeing, you know, it's coming from multiple directions. It's not cannot simply be, you know, reduced to lost cause sentiment. You know, there's a mix of things coming in and, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, the generalship and being a corrupt president and incompetent. And, you know, there's a lot more to the story than some of those crude st stereotypes. Grant is certainly not perfect. And, uh, you know, I, yeah. some of my scholarship alludes to that, particularly with yeah. his relationship with slavery, but yeah, there's more to it. Uh, so I'd say the reevaluation, um, it, 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 it go back to Brooks Simpson. I really look up to Brooks Simpson as a historian and his scholarship. He's got um, there's really three different books that analyze different aspects of Grant's life. Um, Let us have peace. Looks at the period after the Civil War, going into Grant's presidency. That period when Johnson was was president. Yeah. Uh, his biography of Grant, Triumph Over Adversity, goes up through Appomattox, which is really good. And then uh, Simpson's book, The Reconstruction Presidents, looks at Lincoln, Grant, Johnson, and Hayes. It looks at all four of them. And he's got a couple chapters on Grant's reconstruction policy. 
So he really did the heavy lifting in the 1990s of really challenging historians to look at Grant differently. Uh, and then we've seen other books by Gene Edward Smith, uh, Joan Wad, the, yeah. the Ron White, Ron Chernow. So there's, Grant's become sort of a hot topic now uh, among historians. <laughs> yeah. And I'd also argue, too, that, you know, the, the, the past shapes the present, but the present shapes the past as well. And a great example of that is the civil rights movement. 1950s and 1960s puts a whole new light on Reconstruction, you know, whereas somebody like Alan Nevins would say that the 15th Amendment is a colossal failure uh, and that African-Americans are unprepared for citizenship and voting rights. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s challenges historians to think about the ways that, uh, you know, perhaps this was a very noble uh, effort on behalf of the Republican Party. And so obviously our, our uh, contemporary uh, politics, even moving into the present in our conversations about the place of uh, race in American society today, influence the way we look at Grant's presidency and how he tried to uh, uh, address civil rights questions during Reconstruction. So um that, that's what I'd have to say about a lot of the scholarship going on today. Some of it might go too far in the other direction and be too praiseworthy of Grant. But in any case, I think um, I do think we see a lot more balance in, in, in some of the more recent studies compared to, uh, you know, what's going on in the early and middle 20th century. Yeah, Grant seems like a guy who's either walking into the wind or it's at his back. Like there's never yeah, a right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a complex existence for Grant. And I think, but that's what makes him so fascinating yeah. is that there's so many different ways to approach his story. Mm. Uh, what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from President Grant? Yeah, you know, I think from President Grant specifically as president, um, the really big takeaway for me is just sort of the importance of upholding the spirit of popular government. Popular government, meaning this idea that um, citizens of the United States, people who live in the country, who have the opportunity to go to the polls, to cast their votes, to have their voices heard, to run for political office themselves. This notion that, you know, we, we live in a society that's not governed by humans or governed by men or arbitrary rule, but uh, governed by laws and governed by principles and rights that are guaranteed to us through a constitution. And, um, you know, for a president, that's a very difficult task to live up to. And, uh, um, you know, if you can find a president in our history that fully lived up to that ideal, you know, tell me about it. But, uh, but at the same time, I, going back to that election of 1872, uh, this notion of, uh, you know, doing, using the federal government to work with the states to ensure that it's a free and fair election. I think it's very noble. I think Grant demonstrates to us as well, specifically that the federal government does have a role in enforcing the constitution and enforcing civil rights uh, in partnership with the states. And, and what I mean by that specifically is that for many, many years, um, legal theorists in the 19th century argued that the bill of rights did not apply to the states. So the right to freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, all of this stuff, it applied to restrictions on Congress, but not on the states, right? Uh, and so I think during Grant's presidency is the first time where we see the federal government actively informing, enforcing civil rights. It's not simply left upon the states to do that, but the federal government is using you know, the Department of Justice, the Attorney General's Office, 
a series of enforcement acts passed by Congress. They're using federal law to enforce civil rights. And so, um, you know, nowadays it's pretty common belief that, you know, the, uh, uh, the Constitution applies to the states as much as the federal government. But that idea was very much in its infancy during Grant's presidency. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the true spirit of federalism is the, is the notion of the federal government and the states working together. And that should mean as well that, you know, the Constitution applies to both forms of government. Awesome. Uh, if you'd like to hear more awesome stuff about Grant, go out and visit Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site in St. Louis. Nick, thank you so much for your time. This has been an awesome interview. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Kenny. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always great to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll talk to historian Joan Woe about the evolving reputation of Ulysses S. Grant. Why was he once so out of vogue? And why is he now so hot? That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>